Welcome, fellow veterans. From the tip of the spear to in the rear with the gear. I went from active duty infantry to reserve component logistician. I'm your host, CEO, entrepreneur, trial lawyer, and Lieutenant Colonel retired, John Barry. The military lessons that I learned helped me grow an eight-figure business that has maintained consistent annual double-digit growth, landing on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies in America every year for the past seven years, and has allowed me to continue to serve America's heroes. Welcome to Veteran Led. I'm joined today with Senator and Colonel Retired Tom Brewer. I want to tell you a little bit about his past, give you a brief bio. This is not all inclusive, but these are some of the highlights. Colonel Brewer served as both an infantry officer and an attack helicopter pilot. He retired as a colonel in the reserve component after 36 years of total service, including two tours in Kyrgyzstan and six in Afghanistan. He was shot six times in 2003 and blown up by an RPG in 2011. He's a recipient of two Purple Hearts, a Bronze Star, and the Secretary of Defense Medal of Freedom, as well as the Combat Infantryman's Badge, the Ranger Tab, and several other awards. His combat experience in Afghanistan is documented in a book called The Boneyard, written by James Christ. Colonel Brewer led a response team following Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. His team rescued more than 600 civilians. Brewer was elected in 2016 and was the first Native American to serve the Nebraska legislature and was re-elected in 2020. Senator Brewer led a contingent of state lawmakers to climb Mount Kilimanjaro and conducted five humanitarian missions to the Ukraine, three before the war started and two afterwards. Recently, Senator Brewer received the Chief Standing Bear Prize for Courage, which was October of 2023, and his children and relatives serve in the military today. I'm honored to have you here, Colonel Brewer. And before we get started, I want to tell you a story I heard from someone who, who knows you well. And I was asking him about your leadership. And he said, you know, there are three types of officers. There are the officers who only care about their careers. They are the careerists. These are the Blue Falcons. Then there are the, those who will do what's right for their soldiers, but they would rather beg forgiveness than ask permission. And then there is Tom Brewer, who puts the team first, puts people first, puts the mission always, and exercises an unapologetic belligerence when it comes to taking care of his men. I'm honored to have you here. Thanks so much for being on the show, Colonel Brewer. John, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be here. So I want to start at the beginning. And you grew up on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation and became quite a marksman. Tell us what growing up was like. Well, it's kind of a survival drill. Of course, when your father's an airborne ranger, uh, you you are required to learn to uh, double time, not run. Um, you have to learn survival skills because if you don't, you don't survive. He um, he stressed to us the need to to not miss because we were poor and uh, ammunition was uh, at a premium. And then, of course, you learned how to skin animals and um, find ways of making money, whether you were crushing aluminum in cans or, or tanning hides. So, I mean, it was probably a good uh, experience for someone who was going to grow up and be in the military. Now, I heard a story when you came back from Afghanistan in 2003, and this is, of course, the 
the boneyard was written about your experience, but I, I heard you give a speech and you spoke specifically about the basic soldiering skills. And you said, you know, I learned to be a good marksman and that saved my life. And the basic soldiering skills that we learn can save our lives. And it, you just kept going back to the basics. And I, I really, this is why I wanted you to be on the show so bad because at Veteran Led, I believe that veterans know the basics to be successful. Uh, and, and you've embodied that, not just in your military career, Career, but your post-military political career, your humanitarian career, and so I'm really excited to talk about that. So, you grow up on the reservation, you learn some skills, your father's an airborne ranger, so I take it by the time you were 18, you didn't even have a choice. I would say that um, if there was anybody who ever walked the earth that didn't have much of a choice about what he was going to do, it would be me, because uh, my father was very blunt in saying, I, I don't have the money to send you to college. The only thing I can do to prepare you for life is to be there and sign the paperwork and make sure that you uh, are airborne and ranger qualified. After you do that, your life is yours. But I believe that will give you a path ahead. And so that may be a harsh life for some, but I think uh, for me, it, it, it really did a great job of setting a course ahead uh, that this the stressing of marksmanship become a, a factor later in life because as I I became a better shooter in the military, I was invited to try out for the 96 Olympics, went to Atlanta on the U.S. Olympic team on the military side, and uh, was an alternate, not a primary, but it instilled this understanding of the importance of it. I had a chance to meet with Gary Anderson, and if you're not familiar with Gary, he's a two-time Olympic champion from Nebraska, little town of Axtell. And he was running the Olympics at Wolf Creek there. And he took me under his wing and coached and mentored me and stressed marksmanship and taught fundamentals I had never heard. And then I used them to build teams for Nebraska because when I became the marksmanship coordinator in Nebraska, we were 49th out of 50 states. And uh, 49th being almost the worst. Uh, the, well, one way from the worst. Um, so. Uh, within two years, we were national champions. And then, you know, this was in the in the 90s when uh, the football team was winning and we were winning. And, you know, it was kind of a nice place to be. And it, it ultimately led to me being selected as the director of marksmanship at Little Rock and, and training the whole nation in marksmanship. So, you know, it's funny how small things like just being able to shoot accurately to survive became this passion and skill that helps you through life. And actually, you just told me we're, we're sucking down a lot of coffee today because where were you yesterday? I'm um, shooting a, a, a long-range uh, competition in Missouri. Okay. And you got to be, what, about 65 years old, and you're still competing? <laughs> actually, I uh, won the world championship uh, three years ago at, at 62. So I'm slowing down. I'll freely admit that. But uh, sometimes with shooting, it's about understanding wins. It's understanding about conditions. And... And sometimes being old works to your advantage, not your disadvantage. Now, now speaking of that in shooting, understanding that you know the infantryman is the rifleman. How did you transition, or why, to becoming an attack helicopter pilot? Well, I wish I had some great story about how I was, um, you know, a, 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 a genius and was able to do great on the uh, FAST test, the flight aptitude test. But what happened was uh, in the uh, early 80s, the Army was hurting for helicopter pilots. And uh, so they came to a number of us. And back then, there was no uh, allowance for poor eyesight. You either were a 20-20 or you didn't get to fly. Well, I was blessed to have 20-20 vision. 
And back then, you st- you kept your branch originally. There was no aviation branch. So they said, why don't you transition, uh, become a helicopter pilot. You can still keep your branches infantry. And I said, well, okay. And uh, so I was in a room, and they said, what, what would you like to fly? Well, the options were the Chinook, which was the flying school bus, didn't want that, the Huey, which was the small bus, and uh, and then the Cobra. And and so the Cobra gave you a 20-millimeter cannon, 2.75 rockets, and tow missiles. Not a hard decision, plus it flew faster than the rest of them. So I, uh, I became a Cobra pilot. I truly enjoyed it. But what happens in aviation is your true pilots are the warrant officers. They're the ones who do the majority of the flying. And as a commissioned officer... As you work up to staff assignments, uh, you, you you either fly a lot and are good, or you don't fly that much and you're dangerous. And I did not want to be the cause of my death. I wanted I wanted to have a fair shot at, at surviving this military career. And I could see how my skill sets not only endangered me, but the other person if I didn't get enough flight time. And that was just becoming physically impossible. So I made the decision you know, to to leave aviation and go back to just regular staff assignments and duties as you normally have because I felt that at that point I really had served my value in, in the aviation community. And that is how you ended up with a combat infantryman's badge, even though you went from infantry <laughs> aviation back to infantry. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Right here I have the book, The Boneyard, written by James F. Christ. Uh, it, this is the book about your experience, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I like the book for, for several reasons. I like the way it starts and ends with this general officer telling you that you don't need any more firepower than your 9 mil. Now, let me tell you about a mistake I made, and I talked about it in an earlier podcast. 2005, I was in Iraq. It was Christmas. Presents were coming in. I had soldiers across many fobs. I'm sure you know the experience, and you want to check in on your team, yeah. deliver the presents, make sure the holiday is going well because depression and those things can set in. And I, 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 I got a sergeant major to come with me, and we just... You know, we just hopped on a Chinook and flew out to this fob, and we just assumed, okay, we'll get a, we'll get a flight out of here, right? No problem. And when the next stop was Fallujah, well, we stop at the fob with the presents with our nine mils because we didn't want to carry a lot. We had to carry presents. Well, of course, uh, there was no flight out, and we had to take a convoy uh, to Fallujah. And the Marine Lieutenant, who I hitched a ride with, is like, "Where are your weapons?" And I showed him the nine millimeter pistols, and he laughed and handed us some AK forty sevens, and we <laughs> and we and we got through Fallujah, but. My, my point is, uh, you showed up and then you said, uh, sir, we need weapons. We're in Afghanistan. We're, we're, we're training ANA, the, the Afghan National Army, and you're the embedded training team. And so you're out training with the Afghans during the day, traveling back to your base at night, at, in, the, in this book, 0100, and they're telling you you don't need weapons. <laughs> and so you uh, obviously put up a fight and get the weapons, and then the boneyard happens. So please, Tell us about the Boneyard. I've read the story. I've heard your speech. But in your own words, the audience, I think, will lo- will love to hear your version of what happened. Well, you did, you did a great setup. So here we are. It is it is early in the war. We are training the very first Kandax, uh, Kandax, the bat- um, battalions of the Afghan National Army. And we're struggling because some of the folks that have been put in charge uh, were plucked out of the Pentagon and were absolutely clueless about what we really needed. So we worked through that, and we were able to do that partially because of a lot of the captured weapons from caves and 
and stops along the way that we had of vehicles that had them as um, smuggled items that they were trying to bring in. And the problem was if we were out doing uh, operations and they caught us as as U.S. Uh, carrying AK-47s, we had uh, a couple of generals in particular that just really become unpleasant. And it was so ridiculous because if we were in a fight, the ammunition that our troops were carrying, the Afghans, uh, then was interchangeable. Uh, they were reliable weapons, and with a little bit of training, they're fairly accurate for the ranges that we, we dealt with. And so as time went on and I got more and more discouraged, I said, okay, fine. So we literally ordered all the parts to build an AR-15 uh, and then modified them once we were in a country and built weapons over there to issue. Now, they weren't on, they weren't weapons that were seal numbered anywhere on the books. Uh, and and I, that may sound like a ridiculous way of doing it, but it, it turned out that on the evening of 12 October 2003, as we were returning from the Pakistani border uh, after doing ops with a Kandak. So imagine this we train a Kandak up, uh, one of the Afghan battalions. We take them out, and um, they engage the Taliban. And what we did is, is through that process, started to judge leadership. Who was a natural that understood how to, to lead men under fire and who didn't? Because some of the, the early processes there, they simply did it by tribal affiliation. And that didn't correlate to any leadership skills, especially in combat. Like you're born an officer. You're born a leader was how they, the Afghans looked at it. Or you knew somebody who was appointing someone to a position and, and just because of who you know, not what you know. So we changed that. We said, no, that, that's not how this is going to work. So we'd had a good day and we had figured out some NCO positions and uh, and things were really working nice. And it was, it was a beautiful evening, actually. Uh, we're coming back and uh, we went through uh, this place called the Boneyard. So the Boneyard, en- envision this, hundreds of destroyed Soviet tanks and armored personnel carriers are in this area that's rel- relatively small. And I think what happened is after several battles, they drug these in. So there was just kind of a congregation of these. A junkyard of A tanks. junkyard, that's it. That's a good way to look at it. Well, the Afghans were kind of... Um, superstitious about the place because there were still skeletons in some of these so they didn't really go anywhere near it and when you say skeletons you mean human remains remains, not skeletons of vehicles yes human (laughs) remains still in the old russian vehicles right so the uh, afghans didn't want to go there so what do the americans do we build a road through the middle of it well evidently the taliban weren't as concerned about uh, you know skeletons in these vehicles because they set up to launch into the city of Kabul, which wasn't far from the boneyard. Uh, some of these Katusha rockets, and in, they were setting those up to fire them in the middle of the night as we just happened through there, and they didn't expect anyone to be coming through. Uh, they engaged us. Uh, there was only six of us, uh, two vehicles, and uh, when they did. My thought process at the time is, okay, there's two, because that's all we saw one time, a guy with an RPG and a guy with an AK. So it seemed like good odds, six of us, two of them. And I thought, you know, if we don't deal with this, the next convoy to come through may not have the the luck of being missed by that first shot. So we're going to close with and destroy the enemy. That's kind of what we got paid to do over there. That, that, that's the number one job skill of the infantry, to close with and destroy the enemy. So uh, we, we actually pulled in behind a destroyed T-55 tank. Uh, I broke us into two teams, an A team and a B team. 
we move forward, I said, listen, I will move to the flank where there is a wadi that lets them escape to the Jalalabad Road and cut that off. You guys stay here. It's open desert behind him. We'll call the QRF. We'll hold them in place so they get there. Then we'll close with. They'll either give up or pay the consequences. Now, at that time, the QRF, the Quick Reaction Force, is 10th Mountain Division. It is the 10th Mountain Division. Okay. And just as a, a passing note, the the commander of the the regiment that was there of the 10th Mountain Division was a guy named Mark Milley, who just retired as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. <laughs> His boss and the guy who signed both my Purple Hearts was a guy by the name of Lloyd Austin, who is currently the Secretary of Defense. So on the night of the Boneyard, the two in the sequence of the chain of command um, ended up sticking around for a while. And so anyway, that's just kind of a trivia. But uh, neither of them was the one who had made the decision to not allow us have um, the weapons. That was a one star. And... Uh, uh, again, he worked at Siege of Soda and um, just was kind of uh, a pain in, in everyone's side because he just did not understand how to train soldiers or fight wars. But that's okay. The, the Army has a bad habit of putting people like that in leadership. He was, he was a bureaucrat, and bureaucrats absolutely hate heroism. Oh. And so, what do they ever? And, you know, one of the things on the Veteran-Led Podcast is we take away a lot of the great things we learn from the military, but we also learn from the stupid stuff. And as you said, the Afghans had AK-47s. They had 7.62 rounds. And had one of them been shot in because you're training in the compounds, in open areas, where you are subject to enemy fire, that, that can happen, and, and, and this general is telling you, you don't need more than a 9 mil. And you understand there's snipers out there, there's RPGs, there are people who want to kill you, there are people who are not happy, you are training their adversary. And so you're doing everything you can, and, and this general officer is saying, well, we really don't think that you need that weapon, that protection. But even the, even the, the stupidity around the, the AK-47s, I'm like, if you just think about simplicity, right, if you run a business, you understand that you have to, you know, recycle things you have to reuse things and if if, if if something happens to your weapon system or something happens to an afghan soldier and you're under attack there are going to be ak-47s on the ground and there are going to be there's going to be 762 magazines full and the fact that you aren't allowed to carry one is just complete and sheer stupidity so anyway so i i i, I I can only imagine your frustration. And look, everybody that served this listening to this knows the, the level of stupidity. We've all seen big army stupidity. But here it is, the one star, the bureaucrat, who's tell, who's off somewhere safe, telling you on the ground, Colonel Brewer, I don't think you should have weapons. I think you're safe. And that's the one of these, why don't you come down here with your 9 mil and help me, right? Well, and uh, probably the thing that, that struck me as is the most challenging of the after action part of this was they were going to give me a letter of reprimand because I had failed to properly prepare my men for this engagement that they were without the proper weapons so I told them I said no that's that's not true I tried to and I was denied this and I attached the letter fortunately that I had gotten back from them denying it and uh, for some reason, the letter of reprimand went away, and, and they went to the Broad Star instead. But <laughs> the point being that that night, uh, we were limited in our resources because what happened was the QRF had gone to Bagram to pick up supplies. And, of course, there's always a backup to a QRF, and the backup was the Germans. 
So when we got the the information, they weren't available. We go to the backup. The Germans and the Germans are like, listen, love to help you, but we need permission from our Minister of Defense in Germany. Well, this is in the middle of the night, and the minister is not available, so they couldn't come. So we had to internally build a QRF from soldiers near the Pakistani border, past a place called Pola, Turkey, and internally they came to the rescue. So it was it was ourselves building this QRF. But again, they weren't as equipped as well as they should have been because of the rules. But they did bring AK-47s, and that was part of what they used to suppress the enemy until the real QRF could get there, and we were able to make this work out to our advantage. But, you know, it, it, sometimes you, you get frustrated because the obvious right answer uh, isn't the answer that the leadership, you know, uh, allows you to, to execute. And that's that's where people get killed and things happen. And uh, I always thought that, you know, if I was ever to be in a position of authority where I could make sure those kind of things didn't happen, that was that was one of my goals of my career. So, you know, going back and forth to Afghanistan on all those tours, I, I was always very careful to make sure, you know, that the men always had what they needed, especially body armor and weapons. And beyond that, you're a little bit at the mercy of, of the government and what what's available. But it was it was something that I just kept going back to. And and as you know, time went on and I was able to go to other places like the Ukraine, it was valuable in coaching and mentoring other leaders. And, and that's, that's an important lesson. I think as, as a leader, sometimes we want to set rules, and we don't always think through how those rules, the secondary and tertiary effects, affect our teams. So let me take – I took you out of the fight. <laughs> Sorry for the detour, but there's a lot of leadership lessons there I wanted, to, I wanted to pull out. All right, so now at this point, you've decided to close with and destroy the enemy. There's, there's two – you see two enemy combatants. You know that if you don't take <laughs> them out, somebody's going – they're going to be back. You think there's two. That's what I, You saw two at the time, and so you've decided that, okay, this is – you know, this is something that we need we need to take care of. Otherwise, other soldiers, other Marines, other individuals in Afghanistan could be harmed. And they know we're coming through this road. If they try to ambush us, they're going to try to ambush someone else. So you engage. You try to get a hold of the QRF. There's no QRF. You divide your, as you said, you divide your team into the Alpha team and Bravo team, and you start to maneuver around. Now what happens? Well, it was my plan, so I thought it was a good plan. Um, but as it developed, there were some... Um, glitches there so the uh the alpha team they laid down a base of fire i moved to the flank along a wall a short wall about as tall as this table and i told the other two i said here's here's what we're going to do we're going to jump over this wall we're going to move about 100 yards to a large pile of concrete i said we're going to get behind the concrete that will cut off their exit route and we'll just simply hold them at bay until we could get the qrf what I didn't realize, first off, understand it was not all my team members. We had several from the Pentagon that were there to evaluate the training. And uh, I, those were the two I got. And as I jumped over the wall and took off, the, the guy next to me, his vest hooked on some rebar that was sticking out. And so when he went to go, he couldn't go. Well, because he didn't go, the other guy didn't go. So what happened is it was a solo sprint, <laughs> and, and I was a distance runner in college, but become somewhat of a sprinter because it just was a few dashes into this that um, they opened up from the building, and uh, that was what the realization was that there wasn't two. There was a much larger number there. I think in the end we counted 70-plus uh, 
that it either killed, wounded, or captured. So we misjudged that a little bit. Um, but when I got to this giant pile of concrete, then I was there by myself. So the situation was I couldn't get back without probably being in a lot of risk. I still needed the mission of keeping them from escaping. Didn't realize the QRF was going to be delayed. So it seemed like that mission was simply a relatively short one. The distance from uh, Camp Phoenix to where we were was a matter of maybe 15 to 20 minutes. So I said, I'll lay down the base of fire. We'll just continue. The mission is planned. And, um, you know, we, we, we drive on. And the firefight started and it continued. And this went on for about 15 minutes. It was during that period that they came back and said, oh, the QRF isn't there, but we're going to the backup. Well, the enemy started figuring out that uh, we might want to get out of here. This, this could turn bad for us. And so they started in bunches of five or six rushing toward my position or toward this wadi, this opening there was in the hillside there. And so I was engaging them. That's going back to your original point. The beauty of, of this was I, had, I didn't have night vision, but I had a Trejicon, uh site that had the uh, illuminated V or Chevron. And it was very effective as they stepped out and the silhouette came visible, just shoot center of mass and they drop and you'd work on to the next one. And so there wasn't any issue there except that at about the 30 minute spot, I noticed that I had shot up two magazines. Now I had six, so I had, had more to go. But when they came back and said that the Germans weren't going to be available, I started thinking this through that that this could be a long evening and I probably needed to pace myself a little bit on the shooting. Now, I also had a nine millimeter and I had, I always carried more ammunition than I needed to. And some people made fun of me uh, before, not after. So I thought, well, you know, we'll, we'll still be fine. Uh, but what they did then is started running larger groups. And uh, it was during that, that I was shot the first time and it actually hit the concrete and then ricocheted and and came right along my brow line and opened up the side of my head and i'm trying to self-treat with was called quick clot now quick clot back then looked like broken eggshells and when you put it on it instantly burned and it, it almost sizzled like it was um it was early before they really defined it as well as it is now and so i was a little shocked that my you know, uh, the, the effect it had. And that was a little bit of a distraction in the middle of some pretty busy work. But it quit. It turned into kind of like a jello on your skin and stopped the bleeding. That's all good. Uh, the problem was, as they rushed the next time, a guy was able to get essentially from me to you away and stitched me with an AK at not point-blank range, but near point-blank range. Uh, two of them went into the vest. One went into my left lung. Uh... I was able to successfully engage him back, and he didn't have body armor, so that, that was a win. The problem is a bullet hitting a sappy plate at close range, it doesn't penetrate the plate, but it takes and it pushes through fairly deep and then flexes back and breaks ribs. So now you have multiple broken ribs and a punctured lung, your side of your head opened up, and you're still in the middle of this fight that you probably want to continue or else this isn't going to work out real well for you. And um, so I had to regroup and call back and say, all right, uh, here's a situation. We need to figure out how to solve this quickly or this is going to be over. And that's when my internal QRF came. Now, you hadn't told anybody you'd been shot at that point. I didn't think it was necessary. I was afraid. I was worried that at this point, none of my guys had been wounded. 
And I didn't want them, because I knew some of them, as loyal as they were, they would have jumped over the wall and come running over to help and would probably resulted in, in them not surviving. And I didn't want to be the cause of someone's death because of my injuries. It was more important that we just continue the fight. And now, now let me let me ask you a question though, because I want to. I, I read this in the book that when you were initially engaging the enemy and they were coming out of everywhere, it was like shooting coyotes on the reservation. Just you know, real easy. You know, it, it's just it's natural for you. Now we know that breathing is very important to marksmanship. Now you've got broken ribs. You're having trouble breathing. How does that change the dynamic now of the firefight? Well, <laughs> you you your vision narrows as you have less oxygen and less blood. And um, it, it made everything more challenging. The problem was the, the rate that they were coming at me was exceeding my ability to engage and reload and engage. Now, they were stacking up, you know, a number of folks there, but they had few options. Uh, they, they seen the base of fire coming from the forward position. They couldn't go that way. They couldn't go out in the desert. So I was it. Uh, and so on the next wave that came, um, I was shot in the chest again, only it was with a PKM, um, which is their kind of equivalent of our 240 or M60. That was a violent uh, event because it literally picked me up, threw me back, I landed on the back of my head. It was only at that point that I realized that when I was setting in the vehicle, uh, moving at night, I had a, a map out and was making some notes on the day and I had taken off my helmet, set on the floorboard, um, and when it all happened, I never picked it up. So the first I realized I didn't have my helmet on was when my head impacted the concrete behind me. Uh, that was a wake-up call. And when I focused, I was surrounded by enemy. It had blown the radio out of my hand, and so they were engaging, shooting into the ground where the radio was, thinking that's where I was. But unfortunately, it had blown about 10 feet away from me, and it, but it had also blown the rifle out of my hand when I was hit. Uh, but your pistol was strapped to your leg, so I just reached down, pulled it up, and engaged only two of them that were near me. But what happened in the melee, they turned and literally shot each other which is fine with me. I was, I was good to go with this. Um, and then actually, as they were laying there, policed up some of their AKs because I could see that at the rate of uh, fire that I was doing, I was down, I think, two magazines left, and that I'll take an AK over nothing. And so uh, the fight continued. It was back and forth. And the only thing that became an issue is I fired the last of my uh, M16 rounds uh, I transitioned to the AK, and I did not tell my men that. Well, at night, there's a very distinct signature of the AK because it it pulls, it kicks out this barrel, a, a ball of fire that that is unique compared to the M16. And when I did that, my guys thought that the enemy was there. So now I started taking fire from, from my guys, which was much more accurate fire than from the enemy. So I had to call over, and I said, listen, I'm going to break a chem light, and I'm going to drop this. If it's behind the chem light, don't shoot it. And so that's how we continued the fight for a while. Uh, the QRF, internal QRF, arrived. They did a great job of engaging the enemy, holding things, and buying us time. But there was a point where I had been shot through the left arm, shot through the lung, had a chunk of my head gone, and uh, decided that I may want to get out of there because I was running out of blood and bullets and bright ideas, kind of all at the same time. So I said, listen, I got more firepower now. 
You guys pour fire into that building. You buy me time, and I'm coming back to you. Again, did not want them to come to me. That would be what they would want to do, but uh, uh, the, the chances of them surviving that were very thin. And at that point, I'd already been shot up, so it wasn't like it was that big a deal for me to get any more shot up, at least I thought. Um, so in my sprint, after I gave him the go, I had gone about 50 yards and was shot through my right calf. Well, if you've never been shot through your calf, what it does is basically take your leg and it throws it, in this case, into your other leg, and then you go face down, kind of like you're sliding into home plate. And it takes a lot of the fight out of you because you're already in less than great shape. And uh, and as I started to get my eyes to focus, because uh, just like in Iraq, in Afghanistan, there's this powdery dust. It's like talcum powder. So it's in your eyes. You're trying to focus. And when you focus, there's a gun barrel, literally, at, at your temple. And this dark figure standing there. And I still had my 9mm. Sound rounds left. That was really, That's all I had left was that. And as I went to engage him, I realized that it was locked to the rear, that I was running and engaging them and had shot the last round. Well, fortunately, it was empty because the guy who was standing there did not know he was coming. It was a Gurkha soldier, uh, Kajiman Limbo. And Kajiman had jumped on one of the vehicles coming from the border to help. And uh, he wasn't on the same radio frequency as everyone else was. So he didn't get to stay here and let the colonel come to us. He jumped the wall and came. Now, this is a little guy. And, and the Gurkhas are British, part of the coalition. Yes, they come from Nepal. Uh, they are some of the finest soldiers I've ever seen in my life. They're very dedicated. Uh, in Kajiban's case, he didn't speak a lot of English. Because I remember hearing him say, boss, boss, boss. Well, that's what they would, they didn't distinguish lieutenant, captain, colonel. It's just boss. And it was a great sound to hear because I knew that it wasn't the Taliban. And the Taliban wore a dark outfit like that. And what the British did is they treat the Gurkhas as, um, I don't know, lesser than a British soldier. And so they got desert camouflage. The Gurkhas didn't. They had the green. And uh, so that's at night. He appeared very dark. He dropped to one knee. So he weighs 135 pounds, 40 pounds. And he picked me up. So at that time, with all my IBA and all my stuff on, probably 275 to 300, somewhere in there. And you're about 6'3"? Yep. And he threw me over my shoulder, uh, over his shoulder, and ran with me, chucked me over this short wall, jumped over the wall, and immediately started triage from head to toe. And he is, he is doing it as professional as any medical person would. And he's, he's putting a tourniquet on the arm. Uh, went back, did some work on the head and bandaged it. I mean, he's he's doing it upright and uh, put a seal on the lung. The fact that he had the equipment, the fact that he knew how to use the equipment was a great tribute to the British Army and, and to the Gurkhas themselves. And uh, again, he wasn't on the frequency and it was only when I was laying there, they thought I was still somewhere out in the middle there, that I was able to get on the frequency and say, listen, I, I'm I'm good. I'm going to cross the wall. Let's just hold them. And then uh, the QRF arrived, and, and you know, we, we went on from there. But uh, Kajiman Limbo, I put him in for the Silver Star. Uh, it was downgraded to a, um, I think a Bronze Star with V. Uh, but in the British Army, they had put him in for uh, the George's Cross. And I was notified uh, about a year later 
that they had invited me to England to come, uh, that the Queen would present the George's Cross, and uh, went over uh, Kajiman's father, uh, who was a silversmith, had made me a kukri knife, and it is silver inlaid. It was, it was beautiful. And I told him, I said, listen, your son saved my life. I, I should not be taking this gift. I should be giving you one. He goes, no, no. He said, I'm so honored my son had a chance to serve with you, and this is my way of thanking you. And I, I felt small because of this, but at the ceremony, they announced that uh, the last George's Cross to be presented to a Gurkha soldier uh, was for operations in Indonesia in the 60s, and they brought him up to introduce him, and it was Kajiman's father. Uh, wow. You know, <laughs> talk about running in the family. Uh, I, you know, I, I just, and, and Kajiman went on to go to Sandhurst, became an officer, which was unheard of. Uh, Gurkhas could be NCOs, but not officers. And when I was back in Afghanistan in 2010, I went down to the Helmand province and I visited him. He was a captain, infantry company commander then, of a Gurkha company. And he was the first Gurkha to command a Gurkha company. And I thought, you know what? Sometimes karma works in, in the positive way. And in this case, in his case, it did. And I was just so glad that that things worked out for him because he was brave he was he was a soldier true and uh so it was it was really an amazing thing to see what had been a limited future for a Gurkha soldier change because of his actions and so we see a, a parallel here because you were the first native american elected to the nebraska state legislature so obviously a, a pioneer yourself and we'll we'll get into that later but i don't want i don't want to disrupt the boneyard because it's such an important story uh so as 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 you so 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 you've been saved uh, by Kajiman at this point. Uh, at some point, the QRF arrives and you're relieved of command. Well, I was. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't easy though. I, I we we crawled along this wall back to where uh, one of the vehicles were that had a base radio on it. And so I got in there. And so what I'm now is orchestrating the QRFs. Uh, because of cloud cover, we couldn't use uh, air support, but. We did have some problems where the the German QRF finally got permission to come. Uh, the 10th Mountain QRF was coming, and they were coming from the opposite directions, and there was some confusion, and, and the uh, American QRF actually engaged the, the German QRF, and so, you know, we, it wasn't bad enough. We were getting shot at from the Taliban. We we're also getting it from, from both our QRFs. So we had to make sure and deconflict some of that, but it all worked out in the end. Uh, they were able to surround the place. They captured, uh, you know, what was left. There, there was a handful that, that did escape. But, you know, all in all, considering how that could have turned out, uh, it, it turned out pretty well. And then you got, eventually you got medical treatment and had an interesting uh, ride back in the, in the field ambulance. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, so they finally came over and pulled me out and said, listen, um, you need to go get medical attention. You need to get off the radio because we don't want you to bleed to death. And I said, well, probably a fair enough assessment there. So went over to the ambulance. Uh, they had me stretched out in there, and it was the old Humvee Cracker Box ambulance, just a square box on the back. And they had cut off my pant leg and one sleeve, and they were doing treatment. They'd taken the tourniquet off, and all of a sudden, a couple of bullets ripped through the ambulance uh, high above us, 
and uh, the two medics exited the ambulance and left the back doors open. And the the firefight was still ongoing. And I thought, well, this kind of sucks. So I evacuated myself out of the back of the ambulance, went over hid behind a destroyed tank with the others. And I, I, I told them, I said, listen, guys, when you leave, you need to take me with you. And they go, well, we've never been under fire before. And I said, all right, well, just put that down in your AER that that's not something you do is leave the patient when you, when you have to leave. So we come back. Well, these are two spec fours, scared to death. First human being, I think, actually live human being they ever worked on. So they're trying to put an IV in, and uh, they're not having a lot of luck. And part of it was I was probably a little dehydrated. I was, I'd lost blood. You know, if your body has enough happen to it, it is harder to find a vein. So after about the fourth time they stuck me, I said, listen, guys, I'm running low on blood as it is. You need to hit a vein. Well, I was joking, I, but they didn't. You know, they're working on a lieutenant colonel, and they're scared to death. And I only made it worse. And he goes, well, do you care if we put it into your carotid artery in your neck? And I said, yeah, actually, I'd prefer you not do that one. Well, as you'll see in a second why that was. So they finally got a vein. They put it in. And the IV is in. And they said, listen, we're going to get you to the German hospital. It's the closest hospital, and, and we got to get out of here. I'm like, I'm good with that. So they close the back doors. There's a partition, a, a small door between the front and the back. And they had dropped the windows because this was not an up armor Humvee. This was old time, old school stuff. And the passenger uh, medic is actually has his rifle out the window. He's not shooting, but he's ready to if we need be. Because what we didn't know is how many others were in the general vicinity. So in the process of them going down through the ditch and jumping back up on the road to head for the German hospital, the stretcher I'm on, uh, they secured me to the stretcher. Did a great job there. The problem is they didn't secure the stretcher to the deck. So as they did that, it flipped the stretcher over and I landed face first on the floor, which wouldn't have been all bad, except in the process, it pulled the IV tube out, but not the needle. They taped it on. And so now you have the needle in your vein with nothing to stop the blood from just being pumped straight out because it was a you know a pipeline out and uh the longer we went and the more i bounced i was trying to get their attention but it's hard when your face is is against the bottom of a vehicle to yell very loud especially when the vehicle is bouncing and you're getting mashed every time that happens and so uh when we got to the German hospital and he opened the back of it, I remember them saying, holy cow, turn him over quick before someone sees him. Well, I was like, hey, guys, I'm still alive here. <laughs> so they rolled me over. They put the IV back in, and then they went to try and find the Germans. For some reason, no one bothered calling the hospital saying, hey, we got somebody inbound. Well, I got – they unstrapped me when they, when they redid the IV, and I'm sitting on the tailgate of this Humvee waiting – and um, I remember needing to use a bathroom, and there was a porta potty right there. So I hobbled over there because, again, I'd been shot through the leg. And, uh, and I, of course, no more than got the door closed, and I hear a whole bunch of German voices. Well, the Germans showed up, and they can't find me. Ambulance, and then the two kids that were there, the, the medics, they didn't know I went either. So there was a big to do. Well, I figured at that point I was in trouble anyway, so it didn't matter. So took care of business, got back. Well, they take me in, they do all the triage. Uh, cleaned and and most of everything the bullet traveled through so it was more just kind of cleaning dressing the wounds some stitching or stapling and um, I looked a little like Frankenstein between the head and the arm and everything else 
But all in all, I'd come out of it pretty good. Uh, no major things other than lung, which they thought would, would heal fine. So the next morning, they said, uh, would you like to stay here in the German hospital or go to the American hospital? And I said, well, right now, I've only had one guy that speaks English here. So why don't we go to the German hospital? So they brought over what was called a Fox, and that was a wheeled uh, ambulance that was armored. Very impressed with it. So the uh, German medics loaded me up, and they zipped me over to Camp Phoenix. They rolled up to the back of Phoenix's, uh, what was it, TMC, not really a hospital. But they had beds, and you know they, they had the ability to do treatment there. And there was a whole group of Americans waiting there, and they pulled up, and they took the stretcher out. They set it. They have those stands that the stretcher sets on, hooked the IV bag up. Well, neither one of them spoke any English, so they jabbered something in German to the crowd, and the crowd's like, okay, whatever. They get back in the vehicle. They, they scoot on out of there, and then everybody's looking at me, and they're smoking a cigarette, and I'm looking at them, and then all of a sudden they put out their cigarettes, and they all leave. So it wasn't anybody from the TMC. It was people on a smoke break who had been on sick call. Well, I'm a little pissed over the deal. Plus, I'm high on morphine and decided, you know, if you guys don't want to treat me, I'm going to breakfast. So I simply grabbed the IV bag and I hobbled across the compound to the mess hall. And I looked a fright because I had dried blood, my eye sockets and stitches on my head and everything else. And I get a tray, and I hobble through the line there, and the Kellogg, Brown, and Root guy looked at me, and I said, I'd like some bacon. And he was so terrified, he took the tongs and took every bit of bacon that was in the container, <laughs> put it on my plate, and gave it to me. I didn't really need that much, but I hobbled over, and I sat down, and I sat down at the table, and everybody at the table looked at me, and they picked up and left. Evidently, I looked frightful enough that they wasn't <laughs> going to do anything for their appetite. This one I found a little disturbing. Uh, but when I was done eating, it, it all of a sudden dawned on me that... I, I can remember with my 10 number. And so think of this. This camp is a checkerboard of A through whatever and 1 through whatever. So you might be, you know, C17. I couldn't remember my 10 number, and I got discouraged. And uh, the only thing that I knew was they just changed out the, the guard towers on the four corners of the from the old wooden towers to these new metal towers. And I knew that those were on the ground, and there were there were cots in there for the guards to sleep. So I hobbled over there and set the IV bag on the shelf and went to sleep. Well, in the meantime, there was a guy by the name of Tommy Franks, just happened to be CENTCOM commander and decided, you know what, this major was wounded, first field grade officer to be uh, wounded in, in that area, and so I'm going to go present the Purple Heart. So he shows up at the German hospital and he's got his photographer and his aide and all that. The Germans are like, Das Vidodo, he's not here. <laughs> <laughs> so he shows up at Phoenix, and he comes in, he goes, I'm ready to, you know, pin this on. And they go, I haven't seen him, don't know nothing about it. So he starts making some calls and lighting people on fire, going, hey, where the hell is Brewer? And they're like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Well, no one did know. My, my, my soldiers didn't know. None of the hospitals knew. And, of course, the two kids they sent with me didn't speak English, so they didn't know how. They, they said we delivered him. But then the hospital said they didn't get him. So in the meantime, I'm sleeping through all this. I have no idea this is going on. I wake up hours later. It's day. It's dark out. And now the morphine's wore off, and I'm hurting everywhere. It hurts to breathe. It hurts to set up. It hurts to move. I'm like, oh, okay, I, I've got to, I got to go find my – and now I could clearly think what my 10 number was. 
but I'm moving so slow and I'm shuffling like a little old man because I, I couldn't raise my legs because one, one I'd been shot through. And so I stumbled across the camp and I run into one of my company commanders as I'm coming in the tent. He goes, sir, where the hell have you been? And I said, I've been sleeping. He goes, oh my God, the whole world's looking for you. I said, well, listen, I'm tired. I'm going back to sleep. He goes, oh no, 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 no. I gotta take you to the hospital. And so he escorted me over, and as soon as I got in, someone made a call, and the MPs came, and they put me in a room, and they stood there and guarded me, and I didn't go anywhere until the general showed up. But, uh, yeah, it was it was kind of a bizarre experience for the treatment beyond uh, getting wounded. But, you know, it was, it was early in the war. They hadn't had to deal with many casualties. You know, it was just you know, lessons learned and the things that happen in war. Well, thank you so much for coming on here. You, you exemplify the warrior in uniform and the warrior outside the uniform and, and you've given so much back to the community and, and and like me i think you would agree that we receive so much when we serve that it's that it's it, it makes no sense not to give back and the more we give the more we get but i would ask you to leave us with your after action review what are three things that you did that went really well that you've learned from your military career and what are three things that you remember the three up the three down Three that went well, three that didn't happen. I'd love to sit here and say what was the mission, what actually happened, but you've been through hundreds of missions. But if you had to narrow it down to give advice to veterans looking to, to get to that next level, whether it's they're just getting out of the military or they've been out of the military and they want to they want to continue on that path of success, what are the three top things that Tom Brewer has learned throughout his career as a military officer and as a senator and as a humanitarian? Well, on the... Uh on the minus side, you know, I, I think there were times that I didn't listen to uh, my NCOs as well as I should have. And whether you replace the NCO with staff, um, it the end effect is the same. There were times that things could have been done so much more efficiently had I just listened. But sometimes you can be very stubborn, especially as a young lieutenant or captain. Uh, that that would be one of them. Uh, the other one, I think, would be that there were a few things that I was hesitant to do because I was I was worried that it might be too hard. And looking back on it now, I wish I would have tested everything to the limit. And, and to a degree, you know, I, I did pretty good. Uh, you know, Ranger School is not a walk in the park. That's that's a test and. And I feared failing there because I knew of the disappointment my father would have. And, and that, you know, that's hard. You don't, you don't want that to be looming over you. But you also don't want to be that person who says, well, I could have done Ranger School. I just never had a chance. Well, if you shape the fight, you can have a chance. And um, so, you know, don't be afraid of, of – taking risks because in the end the regret will be that you didn't do it not that you did it and failed and uh, and probably the last one is that you know we do these deployments all over the world and the ones who really suffer are your families because you become very focused in theater and making sure that the troops have everything they need and that uh, you're successful in that mission and sometimes you forget back home that you know you have a family that's trying to struggle to get by every day and 
And I always worried that my kids would turn into juvenile delinquents because I wasn't there. So it's kind of refreshing. You know, my son teaches math in, in high school and, and was in the guard. And, and my daughter is, uh, is a captain and, and loving her, her service and what she's doing. And they're raising families. And all my fears of having juvenile delinquent kids <laughs> didn't work out that way. But it was because um, they did a lot on their own. Uh, I wasn't there. You know, I, I missed pretty much three years of my of my daughter's high school and, and three years of my son's high school just because of all deployments with Afghanistan. Uh, so the family be the other thing that sometimes uh, you, you neglect, and I wish I probably would have, have worked harder to get back, see them do more, do more. Uh, on the upside, wow, three's hard because you, you think about all of those who – if it wasn't for them, you would have very limited success in life. And, and, I, and I, I give that, again, to uh, the NCOs that, that coached and met me, met, mentored me over the years, whether it was in Katrina. Uh, when they pull you aside and they say, hey, sir, I don't know if this is a good idea. And then you stop and think about it for a second. You're like, you know, you're probably right. It's probably a very good idea. Uh, so to, to all of those, uh, you know, all those NCOs that over the years – made life successful because they they not only helped you get through it but they also were the ones that uh, made sure you didn't do things that were going to probably end your career um i would say the other one is uh you you look back at all of those opportunities you had in life and a lot of those meant doing a lot of really hard work and taking risks uh, it would be easy to, to go through a military career and not do anything too hard and not take any risks and still become a major lieutenant colonel, colonel. Heck, I, I, I think there's a lot of generals that probably got to be general that way. But when you're finished with your time in uniform and you don't have both officers and NCOs, but especially NCOs, that say, you know, I enjoyed serving with that man. He, he took care of me. He watched out for, for us. Um, then you failed because I don't know how many officers that I could think of now that no one has a thing to say, good or bad. They were invisible through their careers because they, they wanted to be invisible. They wanted to get rank without the challenges and responsibilities and burdens that come with that. And that's all you're going to have when the dust settles. Well, thank you so much. A great way to great after-action review. Thank you, Colonel Brewer, Senator Brewer, a hero to many, uh, but more importantly, someone who doesn't stop being a hero and who continues to give and give and give and build on success so that we can learn what the next step will be for us. I know a lot of veterans who have cherished your leadership and have grown because of it. So thank you for being on the podcast today, but most importantly, thank you for what you do for our men and women in uniform, and thank you for what you do for our communities.
thank you for joining us today on Veteran Led, where we pursue our mission of promoting veteran leadership in business, strengthening the veteran community, and getting veterans all of the benefits that they earned. If you know a leader who should be on the Veteran Led podcast, report to our online community by searching at Veteran Led on your favorite social channels and posting in the comments. We want to hear how your military challenges prepared you to lead your industry or community, and we will let the world know. And of course, hit subscribe and join me next time on Veteran Led.